Happy Mother's Day to you. My name is Doa Ross, and my husband, Stephen, wrote this piece in 2004. He wanted me to be the one to read it to you. I was eight years old. It was a record cold that Los Angeles November night in 1971. Coach called an early end to football practice, which was great since we were all freezing, even Coach. If we'd stayed out any longer, Los Angeles might have had its first case of frostbite. The kids on my team ran to warm waiting cars where their parents greeted them, helping them take off their football equipment. I headed to the bus stop, keeping on my shoulder pads and helmet. It was all I had to keep my flesh warm from the frigid cold of that windy night. The entire trip home would take about an hour and a half, an eternity to an eight-year-old, but I was just happy to be there. My mother would have to count the pennies just to make sure I had enough money to get on that RTD bus. If ever I lost a nickel, I wouldn't have enough money to get home. And so, at least three times a week, the heavy gas fumes from the bus danced through my nostrils. But at least I wasn't walking. Coach Britz beckoned to me. He had always taken care of me. You see, because of him, I got to play on the Beverly Hills Bruins Pop Warner football team for kids. Because of him, I got a jersey and football cleats to wear. He paid for it all. Of course it was against the rules, but he did it anyway. My family was much too poor to pay for such lavish things. My father had died when I was three years old, leaving my mother with no insurance, no money, and five kids to raise alone. And although she didn't know how to change a light bulb or even write a check, my mother realized that if she was going to make it and get off welfare, she was going to have to get her degree. And so she found a program that was developed to help minorities get into, of all places, UCLA. Coach Britz patted me on the back and told me he'd give me a ride home that night. As I sat in the back of Coach's Lincoln Continental, I stretched out my legs, which was easy to do. The interior of the car was huge, almost bigger than my room at home. I smiled, adjusted myself in the leather seats, and watched the cold night pass me by. Coach Britz turned into a Spirit of 75th gas station, explaining that he was almost on empty. In 1971, they actually had people who pumped gas in your car. And as the attendant came out of the station, his jacket was wrapped around him as if his life depended on it. Coach handed the young man his credit card and quickly rolled up his window. I was pondering the beauty of the leather seats when I heard the screeching brakes of an RTD bus coming to a stop. I glanced out the window. The bus door hissed as it yanked itself open. Slightly behind the bus, I could see a woman dressed in white was desperately trying to catch that bus, but she was too late. The bus door slammed shut. Its engines roared as LA's rapid transit turned into the night. The woman just stood there. I couldn't see her face, but I could tell she was sad. And as if missing the bus was not enough, the cold night air seemed to lash out at her like a big bully. She held a tight grip on the stack of books that seemed to anchor her from the wind. She was cold, looking frantically around for shelter. It was then a huge gust of wind from behind decided to greet her. Her books fell, their pages flying open as if they wanted to take flight. And as she knelt to retrieve them, I could see her face. It was my mother. Of course.
course I knew my mother was a student at UCLA, but as far as an eight-year-old mind goes, that was the extent of it. I never thought about how my mother got to and from school, how she had barely enough money to buy all those books or anything to carry them in. I never thought about her being on campus all day with sometimes no money to grab something to eat. It never occurred to me that this was a high-stakes game. If my mother fails, we all fail. And I never thought of my mother caught in the cold trying to get home to her family. But there she was. I told Coach Brits that that was my mother. We quickly grabbed her books and got her into the car. The warm car made her smile. The coach and my mother talked all the way home. They'd met a few times before. Coach talked about what a star player I was and what a good kid I was. But I sat there quietly, not really listening. I couldn't take my eyes off my mother. Somehow, I now saw her differently. I saw the fight for survival that our family was in, and it all depended on my mother. I understood that my mother was in this fight for our family. She was in it for me, and for the first time, I realized I was important, that I mattered. And so my whole life, my mom revealed God's unselfish, sacrificial love to me, and I know him better because of her example. My mother who's here. Hi, Mom. <laughs> I do. But... My, my mother graduated with honors. She graduated with the top ten of her class at UCLA, and she also has a Phi Beta Kappa key. Thank you. My life is like a living letter to the world from Christ. It is a letter written not with ink, no, but with the spirit of the living God. It is a letter written not on a tablet of stone, but on the tablet of my heart. It is a letter written to his glory. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it's Mother's Day 2010. I've never quite known as a pastor what kind of message to do on Mother's Day. So some of you know I've been asking, um, I kind of thought maybe on a Mother's Day you're supposed to do kind of a sermon form of Sleepless in Seattle or uh, Sense and Sensibility or, or, or something like that. But you know the series that we're in, right? About tough times, when times are tough. So all week I've sort of been saying to mothers, you know, sorry, sorry, we're going to talk about tough times. And you know what every mother has said to everyone? Uh, Pastor, don't worry about that. If anybody needs a message for tough times, it's a mother. So um, I, I'm not worrying about it. And especially after this testimony, Stephen um, and Mrs. Ross, it is such a blessing to have you here with us. You really did a great job with this son, and we'll have to see the other uh, four children as well. But uh, I think already a message has been preached just by the way you've lived. So praise God for your presence here with us today. First Peter is a book that talks about uh, the, the kind of tough times that Stephen mentioned to us and tells us how we can live. Our lives don't have to be consumed even when the times that we face are very, very tough. And throughout the entire book of 1 Peter, what Peter says is God knows us, he loves us, and when we trust him, he gives us what we need 
just what we need in the midst of tough times. And at the very beginning, it's one of the most upbeat passages in the entire Bible. It's written to people who are going through tough times, so that's an amazing thing we're going to think about. Uh, it's filled with praise, and he tells us one of the things that we need in tough times and that God gives us in tough times is what he calls a living hope. A living hope. Now, let me just read it to you again. We read it together, but just listen to it again. Uh, Peter, who himself was just about to face some of the most difficult times of his life that would lead to his death, would just declare, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has given us a new birth into an inheritance that can never be destroyed. It can never even spoil. It can never even fade away. New birth. Now, those of you who don't go to church often, that's, that's that born again phrase. You know, it's bantered around in our day that most people don't like. But I hope you see it's really a good thing. It means that on our own, we are trying to find something really worth living for and something that lasts in this world. But there's nothing in this world that keeps lasting. So we need to be, to be born again. When we're born in the first birth, we're, we're made alive to a physical world, a material world. But that material world doesn't last. Everything keeps getting old and fading away. He says what we need, if we're going to live well, is something that won't fade away, something that lasts. Does that ring true to you? Well, it does to me, but if not, well, I had one yes. Uh, balcony, anybody that rings true to up there? Uh, well, that's what we're going to talk about. And it's a, I think it's the thing that Peter says we need most importantly, and it's what God our Father gives to us, a living hope. So I'm going to try to take this as simply as I possibly can. I'm just going to ask three basic questions. Number one, if Peter begins with that, in, tr in tough times we need a living hope, why on earth do we need that? Why do we need a living hope? And my simple answer is this, is because... People go through tough times in this dying world. The things we live for, they seem to be taken away from us at times. The, the, the things that seem to matter, often we, we lose those things. And, and Peter puts it in verse 5, For a little while in this world, you, you have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. The phrases that he uses there is for multicolored, multifaceted. It's almost like one day everything's going well, and then we turn around and just the, the least expected thing is taken away. Have you experienced that? And I think all of us have. Now, in this verse, we see that something that is so basic that I think all of us, when we think about it, we know it's true. That there is no way for you and me to live well in this world. Oh, it's, don't put it up there yet. There's no way for you and me to live well in this world unless we can make it through tough times, right? We can't live well unless we know how to handle tough times. And my contention, and, the, and this message is about this, that you and I cannot make it through tough times unless we have something in our lives that this world cannot take away from us. Something that lasts. We've got to have something that lasts. Now, I was one trying to illustrate this, and you've already seen it in a very personal way. I just closed down our family home where I grew up. Uh, and when, uh, in my family home, my parents had, well, they were proud of their son. They had all sorts of pictures of me everywhere. And one of them I hadn't seen in a long time. And it was a picture from, there it is. All right, that's a college picture. 70s, some of you have been through that era, right? Uh, 
70s. Now, I don't know what you think when you see that picture. Maybe you think, what kind of pastor have we had? And you need to know that my hair had been cut a lot before that picture because I knew my, my parents would, would see it. But one of the things I can imagine that you're thinking is something like this. What on earth has happened to our pastor? He, he's dying. L- look at him now and look... What the years, it was his birthday, how many birthdays has this man had? He's shriveling, aren't you thinking something like that? And uh, maybe if you're really, uh, more, you, you take things more personally, you're saying, what have we done to our pastor? We'd better be kinder to him than we have been. I hope you're, think, I hope you're thinking that. Well, my contention is that it's not just me. I think it's happening to you, too. You may not see it yet, but I'll tell you, you get one of those pictures someday and you're, you're going to see it. Because we live in, in a material world. When we're born into this world, on Mother's Day, we think about that, the birth that we were given into this world. We're brought into a physical world and in this material world, things don't last. And really, suffering is when we have our hearts invested in something that doesn't last and then we see it being taken away or fading away or deteriorating. That, that's what happens when we find our hope in something that doesn't last and then something in this world takes it away. And then that's when we feel sorrow. That, that's when our, we start to feel hopeless. Um, when I was in grad school, I took a course about this. We were asked to read uh, a book by Viktor Frankl called The Search for Meaning. Very famous book, Psychologist. I'm sure all of you have read it. Frankl was a uh, scientist, um, a psychologist, and a medical doctor. But he was also a Jewish man, a Jewish-Austrian man. And when uh, the Nazis came into Austria, he was one of the people that they took captive and threw him into a concentration camp. In fact, he spent a, a lot of time in Auschwitz itself. And he survived Auschwitz. But he said that while he was there in that prison, uh, that concentration camp, he, he couldn't stop being a scientist. So he was evaluating what was happening. He watched, evaluated, and categorized, as scientists do, how different people responded to things being taken away. Uh, and put it in that book, if, if you want to read it sometime, A Search for Meaning. It's been interesting for me that businesses, uh, like the Harvard Business Review, looks at this book in in times when we're going through financial difficulty and this question of resiliency. How is it that people and organizations can be resilient when everything is going wrong? They keep looking back to to, to Frankl's work. In fact, I like the German title of his work. It's Trotzdem, Zakja zum Leben. In spite of everything, say yes to life. And then the subtitle is A Psychologist experiences the concentration camp. Now, this is what he saw. I, I think it'll be helpful to you to think about it and how you might respond to, to pain and suffering when it, when it happens to you. He said there is one group that when they experienced loss and difficulty, they became as cruel as their captors. They, they began to feel like I'm the victim. It's happened to me, so I have the right to get anything I can. And, and they became selfish and took anything from anyone. It it's kind of supports that maxim that hurt people, hurt people. Uh, or what so many of us know when, when people have experienced, when we have experienced abuse, often the natural thing is that we abuse those that are, that are put under our care. 
We need to break from that pattern. But that's what he saw. Uh, the second group just gave up. Um, they said there's no hope. There's nothing to live for. And they just fell into lethargy and, and didn't even want to keep living. There was a third group, interesting group that he saw. It's a rather large group that he said would look back to the things that they used to have and try to hold on to the fact that someday they would get them back. So they found those meanings in those things. He said it was that group that as they continued to live in the camp and sometimes they began to realize, I'm never going to get it back. Uh, that they were losing limb and their health and they're never going to get it back, that fell into the deepest depression. And he said it was among that group that when they got out of the concentration camp and tried to live and still live for those things, even if they got them back, found no meaning in them, they fell into the greatest depression and had the highest degree of suicide. Now he said there was a fourth group, a very small group, who focused on things that their captors could not take away from them. Now, here you have to remember, Frankel was not a Christian. It sounds like he's going to get to my sermon, which he does. But he was not a Christian. But he saw this group, sometimes they focus on the fact that I think I have a mother watching out for me up there somewhere or a friend and I, I've got to hold on for that. But many of them found their focus in and their hope in God. And he said that was the group that ended up being resilient, finding an inner strength, being buoyant. And being able to go on and really live both in the camp and afterwards. He said that the things that help us to live now is what we place our hope in, our focus in for our future. What he was saying was that people need a living hope. If we put our hope in things that won't last, then when they fade away, we fade with them. And, and most of us want to live well and we keep thinking ah oh, i know i don't have everything now but you know someday when i accomplish that i finish college well life will be good and we finish college and it's okay but maybe it's when i really get my first job and we get the job and it isn't all that great well maybe what i really need is a better job it's all my boss's fault and it goes on and on and on that we think we're going to find it in something but even if we find something good there when that is taken away which it will we are made to be hopeless people. Um, I was talking with John Heck. Some of you know, he always sits, I always kind of have, those who are visiting, it's kind of my little church in the big church. So when we shake hands, I always shake hands just with the same group around here. So he always sits right over there in the nine o'clock service. So I was speaking one evening at the Atherton home, the retirement homes. And afterwards, I had talked about loss. And afterwards, John, who is such an insightful man, came up and said, Pastor, you just talked about something that I think we here are learning. We knew it when we were younger. We, we are learning it every day of our lives. He says that as we grow older, we begin to, to experience the reality of this. Loss is our life. Uh, we lose hearing or sight. Uh, most of us have been moved here because we've lost our family homes. Many of us are losing our, our freedom of being able to get in our car and go wherever we want. Uh, many of us are losing our health or even our family members and our close friends. They're all go so he said, you, what you're talking about is what all of us here are experiencing every day. And what we need is the very thing we have found in Christ. Something that cannot be taken away. Something that, that nothing in this world can ever separate us from. So I, I hope this point becomes clear. Uh, why do we need a living hope? 
because we live in a dying world, because we know deep inside there has to be more than just the material things of this world. But we need to find something that lasts. Which brings me to the second question. All right, if God promises that we can have that, uh, how do we get this living hope? And this kind of brings us into what I call Christianity 101. If if you're visiting with us in church today, you'll get to see just the basics of what being a Christian is all about. And the answer that Peter gives us is this. We get a living hope in this world, something that we can hold on to that will never be taken away, through placing our faith in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. That he came into this world, he experienced every kind of hardship imaginable, even death. But nothing could hold him. And through his resurrection, as Peter puts it, from the dead, we know that we who follow him can have something that even the worst this world throws at us cannot take away. Even death cannot steal it from us. And so this is where some of this language, if you're a frequent churchgoer, uh, this language is language we use all the time in church, but people outside church never use it. Words like born again. Uh, you're beginning to see what it's about, don't you? That we don't. If we're just born physically, then the only realities we know are temporary physical realities. So we need to know that there's more to life than just the things we go after in this world. Do you see that? And this is what God is ready to give us. Make us alive to things that are very real, uh, that are eternal. And then words like being saved and, and salvation. And what he's getting at is that we have to be rescued from that way of life that we were in and, and well-meaning in it. We want to live well. We want to enjoy life. I mean, I don't think any one of us wakes up in the morning and says, oh, I hope I have a rotten day today. Oh, man, everything I enjoy, I hope the Lakers lose. And, I, you know, I just, none of us wake up thinking like that. We wake up thinking, I want to I live well, and we go after it. But if we put those things, temporary things, into the heart of our lives, they're simply going to someday be taken away. They're sometimes going to be taken away. So how do we get it? And, and God says he offers this new life into eternal things, being born, made alive to him and to things that last, through faith in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to walk you just through the way Peter did it. What's the motive for God wanting to give this to us? Because we are imperfect people that uh, just, we try to live for ourselves and leave God out of our lives, right? Why, why is it that God is willing to do something so powerful and beautiful for us? And Peter says the motive for God wanting to help us really to live is his mercy. That's another one of those religious words. In his great mercy... Is what it says. God gives us this new birth, making us alive to things that matter. Mercy. All right. Well, partly mercy has to do with me being given something that I haven't earned. Right? So God is willing to give us something that we haven't earned. But mercy is more than that. It means we deserve something a whole lot worse. It's, it's where uh, you deserve punishment because you've done wrong, but the person is willing uh, to offer mercy. I, I just thought, well, okay, I'll throw this in for this service. It, it's like when I ask a philosophy prof before we took a test at Wheaton College, um, why didn't you pray for, why don't you pray for us before the test? Did I tell you about this once? 
So Dr. Stuart Hackett got up and he says, okay, if you want me to pray before you to take the test, I will. Father, I pray that this test and the scores on it may accurately reflect the amount of study that each student has put into the course. Amen. (laughs) No, don't pray for justice. Pray for mercy. We need mercy. (laughs) I just thought of that. I just thought of that with this. And that's what we need. We need God not to deal justly with us because we've all done wrong. Every one of us, we need mercy. And sometimes we need mercy even when we've gone after good things. We want to live well. And so something is missing in our lives. So we thought we might find it when we got married, but somehow still something is missing. Our spouse can't be God and our spouse can't fulfill every need in our lives. And so what happens is maybe I need to find it in a different relationship. So what do we do? We think if I don't find it there, I'll I'll be unfaithful in that relationship and I'll go over here. You see it? Hurting that person, breaking our vows, breaking our promises, wanting to find life. Or we, as I said, we get into a job and we thought, boy, I thought I would find it here in this work. And now I get into this and my boss just irritates me. <laughs> This, is, this isn't life, so where am I going to find it? So we just go out with our friends every evening to the bar. And sometimes we find some fellowship there and friendship there, but less and less so we have to drink more and more. Or maybe we have to find it in drugs or something. We're really looking for life. That's what we're looking for. But eventually we find ourselves being trapped and not finding life there. An addiction sets in that we just can't break. So we come to God, and, and, and when we see our lives are still not in order, we blame everything around us at times. Oh, it's my mother. If she'd been different, I would, my life would be better, or whatever we might say. But when we look in that mirror, we know it isn't just those around us. Because we know if we look to blame other people, we can find something wrong with them, can't we? My, my joke is that when, if people are really looking for an imperfect church, I can help them to find one. Just come. And if what you're looking for is imperfections, you'll see it in all of us, right? And if you're looking for imperfections in your pastor or your church or anyone around, you can find them. But the problem is we deep down know it's not just them, it's me. So I've done wrong, and so what we need is mercy. And this is what the Bible says. I'll just declare to you on the authority of God's Word. You come here and you wonder what God is like. And God's word tells you one of the basic characteristics of what God is like is that he loves to show mercy. He loves to show mercy. Moses would say to God, you know everything about me. I don't know anything about you. Tell tell me what you're like. And in the book of Exodus, God passes in front of him. And when he declares what he's like, he says, I am ready to forgive sins because I am a merciful God. I'll tell you, this is one of the most beautiful things. He is ready to show mercy to those of us who don't deserve it and make us alive. It's what he does. We can't do it ourselves because we keep falling short. See, this is where being a Christian is different from other religions. Other religions sort of say if you do certain things, get up to a certain level, then you'll be able to experience the divine. So do enough yoga, do enough meditation or whatever you need to do. Keep these rules. You can get there. But we know we can't get there. We get up here to this level. Maybe God says, ah. All right, that's good enough. That's close enough. We'll never come close to the standards of of the kind of God, the holy God who is in the Bible. We all have walked away from him. So we don't need just somebody to help us out a little bit. You you and I need. We need a divine miracle. (laughs) We need to be made alive. 
And that's what our merciful God says he is ready to do. Uh, In his mercy, he knows us as we are. He knows where we've fallen short. And he's ready to make us alive. And in fact, on Mother's Day, it's a perfect image. Uh, You know that physically we didn't give birth to ourselves, right? You're aware of that. That you didn't have a whole lot to do with your coming into this world. Your, Your parents did. And so here, if we're going to come alive to things that are eternal... God gives it to us. It's his gift out of his mercy. Now, there is a role that he has us to play. And that's the second point here, is that we receive that gift of coming alive again and beginning to know how to live through faith in what he has done. See, Peter puts it through faith. We are shielded from having to live the way we used to live in this world. And it is for anyone, not just a pastor type, It is for anyone. It doesn't matter what your background is. Jesus himself would just so beautifully declare it. He says that God, my Father, so loves the people of this world that he gave his one and only Son so that whoever trusts in him, in in Jesus, the sinless one who died in our place, whoever trusts in him doesn't have to perish anymore. We don't have to live for dying things anymore. But we'll have, and you know what we have? Eternal, everlasting life. I thought I'd get a few more hallelujahs there, but I'm excited. I'm excited. You can tell I get excited about these things. But that's how we get it. And it's available to you. Whosoever will. And who's in the whosoever? It's you. It's all of us. It's the privilege that God wants to offer. And I pray you might find it if you haven't. Because it's available through faith in Jesus. Which brings me, and I better get there quickly, to the last question. Um, what does this look like? What does this living hope that God gives really look like in this dying world? And my simple answer is, what it looks like is that hope and the joy that comes from hope and trials and the pain that comes from those, they reside together under the direction and control of our loving Heavenly Father. I'm looking to see if it comes home well maybe look at verse 6 you greatly rejoice all right though at the same time for a little while you you have to go and suffer grief and all kinds of trials now this is the hard part for me as a preacher you know i talk about these spiritual things and then people say well I'm, i'm not sure how that affects my real life how does this affect our real lives i'll try to tell you as simply as i can when you place your faith in christ and you're made alive to god First of all, you understand this world better. And in understanding this world, you, you understand what I think all of us have already experienced. That joy and sorrow reside together in this world. They, they, they happen at the very same time. And this is not the way the world thinks about this. The, 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 most people think, well, wait a minute. If I'm suffering, there can't be any joy. And the times when I have joy, it's specifically because I don't have any suffering. But Christians, we know that that's not how it is. I mean, every day of our lives, there's both joy and pain, right? And, and we also understand it. why. It helps us to sus- be sustained in the midst of all of this. So look at verse 6 again. Do you see it? Peter said, we greatly rejoice. Very strong language. Right now, it's present tense. You, can, we, you and I can experience the greatest joy. But at the same time, in the very same verse, he says we suffer grief. Very strong language. Deep burdens, also 
present tense. And he says we do it at the very same time. Now, I've tried to talk about this so many times. And sometimes I'll have people push back and say, this is impossible. Are you trying to say to me, Pastor, that if I lose my home or I lose my job or I lose my health or I lose even worse, a loved one, that I not only have sorrow, but I also have joy? I don't see that, people say to me. And my answer is, know this, yes, Christian or non-Christian, we feel sorrow when we lose things that are important to us. But it's not a hopeless sorrow. We can even experience great joy in the midst of those kind of trials. Anybody get, does this make sense? I'll go to one time, one more way. The book of Philippians. Peter wrote this book. Paul, another apostle, wrote another book. Book of Philippians. Now you need to know about Paul. I, I see a lot of me in him. He had a real dream, something he wanted to do. He always wanted to go to Rome. And he wanted to go as a preacher. Do you have any place in your life that you just really want to go someday? Right now, I have kind of my, I really want to go to the continent of Africa. Do you remember just a year ago, I said, I really want to go to China. And you sent me, so maybe I'm weaseling here. <laughs> so, you, so you get these deep desires, a place you want to go and things you want to see. And then uh, he got to go to Rome. But not as a preacher. He had to go as a prisoner. So he was sitting there, shackled to a captor in an awful Roman prison. And you know what his letter is about? How to have joy. You read this thing, and sometimes people read it and say, it's easy enough for him to say. Things were easy for him. And I say, absolutely not. He was waiting in a prison, ready to be put to death. And yet what he wrote about is, he says, listen, i got to tell you, you can have joy in the midst of all of this. Basically, what he says is, I found the secret. And I think Oprah needs to read it because this is the real secret. <laughs> he found the real secret. I, I have learned the secret of how to be content and to have joy in spite of any circumstance in this world. Basically, if we try to find our joy in the circumstance, when that circumstance changes or is taken away, we won't. But in the midst of that, there is something that will never be taken away. He said, I have learned something. I have learned how to abound and enjoy good times. But I've also been able to have joy in the midst of bad times. I have learned that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And later on, in another letter, in First Thessalonians, he would say, listen, when they had lost some loved ones, I want you as Christians not to sorrow as you used to when you had no hope. See, it's, we feel sorrow, but in the midst of that sorrow, we have a hope. So, so we experience both of these. There are things in this world I just love. I love a great meal. And I think birthday and Mother's Day, we're going to have one afterwards. Um, I love sporting events. I love my teams to win. I love music. I love so many things. And, and I thank God for them. But I have learned not to make those things the center of my life. So that if they are not there... There can still be a joy. Is this making any sense? I'll just one more. Jesus. Jesus, when he goes to the cross, he knew it was going to be hard. He was going to bear the sins of the world. And yet, uh, Christians sometimes say, well, you should have joy in anything. Do you see Jesus going to the cross, sort of skipping and jumping and saying, praise God, I get to go to the cross today. This is going to be a blast. 
Absolutely not. He's there praying. Lord, if it's possible, take this fate, this excruciating cross and bearing the sins of the world from me. But at the same time, as he he sweats drops of blood in that pain, the book of Hebrews tells us he's doing it for the joy that is set in front of him. Knowing that what he is doing will not separate him from the Father and will bring you and me into his family. Are you beginning to see this? I think this is why that back in 1984, when Chris and I lost our second child. Um, and it was such a difficult time. You see, I still feel it. When, if 26 years later, 1984, our second child unexpectedly died. And then, amazingly, friends, and one of them is going to be playing the piano in just a moment for us, uh, Jamie Rankin, uh, came and flew, dropped everything, and came to be with us. We were there at the uh, Ronald McDonald House uh, in uh, Fresno, California. Uh, and we'd have these times of, of just being so grief-filled we could not say a word. And then we'd, we'd begin singing a song or, 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 or talking to one another. And in the midst of the sorrow and the pain, there was this confidence. Do you, have you experienced this? That this is not the end of things. That though I would do anything to have her back again, this is not the end of things. That there is the Lord that I know has defeated death itself and promised us the opportunity for being rejoined. And so in the midst of the sorrow, there was also this deep inner contentment and joy. We know this as we experience it in life through our faith in Christ that these two things live together until God finishes his work and there will be a world with no pain and no sorrow, no death. And then a second thing, i just got to show it to you before we finish, is that we know more than that. It's not just that we grin and bear it and we, have, we survive it, but we know that even the worst suffering this world can throw out at us does not fall outside of the work and the control of our loving Heavenly Father. This great, great verse in verse 7, well, just look at it. Peter said, these difficulties have come so that your faith, he says, you need to know, you and your faith are worth more to God than even gold, which perishes even though it's refined by fire, that your faith in your walk with God may be proved genuine. The trials help you to see what is real and what lasts. They've come so that your life may result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Uh, here, and then once again, when he talks about trials in chapter 4, Paul, Peter talks about the difficulties we face as feeling like fire. It's a good image. Uh, because fire, uh, you know, can either be a, uh, something that really helps us or it really harms us. Uh, fire, when I lived in Chicago, in those cold days, I'll tell you, I love getting close to it. But you know it can also burn us up. So it can either be a positive thing or a negative thing. Uh, another illustration, uh, food. Uh, you take a good, some good food. You put it into the hands of a, of a great chef. Uh, my friend Jamie, who is here, is a great cook. And my son Brandon is really a wonderful cook. And my wife Chris. Food and fire in their hands produces something that I'm just telling you say, make, makes you say praise God. Food and fire in my hands. Almost always ends up in something. When you go out to the grill, you say, now which one is the charcoal and which one is the meat over here? So too, 
the difficulties we walk through, if we turn away from God and say, no, I'm going to live for whatever I want to, we find out that fire, as it always does, consumes temporary things. But when we turn to God, yes, even though those temporary things may still be taken away by the trial, what really lasts, our relationship to God, our confidence and our joy in Him, is made more real. It is made more real. We see it. You see, the trials can push us away from temporary things, which when we have them, we can enjoy them, but we know that we don't live for them and push us to the thing that really matters. Uh, so many times people who aren't Christians will tell me, oh, pastor, this religion stuff, it's like a crutch. When the trials come, you weak people, you can't handle it yourself, so you've got to have this religious stuff uh, so that's a crutch to help you make it through the difficulty. I tell you, it's not like that at all. I have come to see that far from it being a crutch, that sometimes, and listen to me here, the valley of suffering and trials help us to see what is real more clearly than when we're on the mountaintop of success. When everything is going well, we begin to think all those things, that's what really matters. When they're taken away, then we have to say, is this real? And we find God to be there. And our faith is refined and our joy is deepened. This is what we know. That faith, that hope and trials reside together and that we learn as we walk with him that this trial is not outside of God's control but sometimes he, he allows it or he even sends it so that we might see that our faith is genuine. And find that there is always hope and joy in it. I'll close with this. Last week, uh, I told you that just the previous week, I had flown back to my beautiful, beautiful home in Bluefield, West Virginia. As we were moving, a fellow Bluefield, West Virginian there, as we were moving um, my parents to assisted living in Bristol, Tennessee. Um, I I love this place. It's a beautiful place. Wonderful. I love the home I grew up in. I have incredible memories that are there. 47 years, same home. Um, but we only had two days. Brandon and Chris and I only had two days. So we and five people from the auction company came in and we worked like crazy. Uh, cleaning out things, tearing out the carpeting, trying to get the house ready. In two days, 47 years of living, we're out there on the street corner. Some of it in the truck to be taken to the auction, some of it on our our porch being ready to take to the mission, some of it in trash bags. 47 years of living. I remember each time I'd go into a different room, I would would just want to stop and look at every place and everything in there and have all the memories. Fortunately, I had my wife there say, Greg, we've got to get this done. We we only have a couple of days. Now I'm going to go back this week. And we'll see it again. And I may never have a chance or a reason to go back to my beautiful home again. But really, that house will no longer be my home. My parents won't be there and the whole community has changed. What does your pastor need in a time like that when you begin to see the things you just really love don't last? What do I need? You know what I need. I need a living hope, a living hope in this world, a a certainty that there are things that cannot be taken away, that are not held captive 
by the deteriorating world that we have been placed in. And our merciful God turns to all of us and says, that's what I want to give you. It is available to all who believe. And I'll tell you, when we have found it, when we have found it, we can only say with Peter, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to him because in his great mercy, because we needed it, in his great mercy, he has given us, of all people, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And he's given us a new birth into an inheritance that can never be destroyed, that can never even spoil and can never fade. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who can give to us this living hope. To his glory. To his glory. Amen.